Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdeen and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabity.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome American writer, Dr. Sarah Centillis to Books, Books, Books to discuss her heart-wrenching memoir, Stranger Care, subtitled, A Memoir of Loving What Isn't Ours. This is about her husband and her own experience of fostering a baby girl in Idaho where they live. The book was published here in Australia in May 2021 by Text Publishing. It's had some fabulous reviews and some wonderful descriptions that I think my favourite is that by best-selling author of Wild, Cheryl Strayed, who has described it as a powerful, heartbreaking, necessary masterpiece. Sarah, welcome to Books, Books, Books. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Nicole. I'm delighted to talk with you. Let me tell you a little bit about Sarah now. She's a writer, a teacher, a critical theorist and a religious scholar. She lives and writes in Idaho. She has a bachelor's degree from Yale and a doctorate and a master's from Harvard. Stranger Care is Sarah's fifth book. Her most recent before that, Draw Your Weapons, won the 2018 Penn Award for Creative Nonfiction. Sarah's writing has appeared in many publications, including the New York Times, The New Yorker and the Los Angeles Review of Books. As well as writing, she teaches writing workshops and works one-on-one with writers to support their creativity. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really happy about it. Thanks, Nicole. So let's start at the beginning. You started the book saying that you had always imagined yourself as a mother, but it wasn't until you were in your mid-30s, you and Eric had been together for a while by then, and Eric was nearly 40, that you started to talk, actually, about becoming parents. How did Eric feel about that? (laughs) Well, I I think of myself as a feminist. I pride myself on being a feminist, um, but it turns out I have a really difficult time saying what I want. Um, I have had in my life a difficult time saying what I want from small things like what I want for dinner to big things like what I want to do with my day. Um, And when I finally admitted to myself that I wanted to be a mother and then admitted it to my partner, I discovered I was married to an environmentalist who did not want to bring another human being into this world. Um, Eric wants to live in a world where we tend the earth. And I realized I want to live in a world where we tend one another, especially a world where we tend the stranger. And so foster care became our common ground this way that we could become parents together. Um, But in order to do that, we had to remake our marriage as more equal partners. I had to really be bold and say what I wanted and Um, Eric always thought he was married to someone who was saying what she wanted, but um, we had to just wrestle with what does it look like to be in an equal partnership and what does it look like when people want something different about something as major as becoming parents and how you do that. So I'm I'm grateful that we did all of that wrestling because I think it made our partnership better. Um, And then we ended up choosing that we wanted to foster um, and that that became our common ground. You said also that as you're in the process of disagreeing about this, what you were going to do and how you were going to do it, that 
it really brought out one of the features of your relationship that you hadn't thought about before, which, well, you had thought about, but it, it brought it out in stark relief that at, basically he was a pessimist or certainly not an optimist, mm-hmm. and basically you were an optimist. So you talk about when the two of you imagine a world with your child in it, he feels fear and anxiety because the world is not a great place. The world that we live in now is not a great place to bring a child and potentially you're causing harm to the environment by doing that. You, on the other hand, when you think about what a world would be like with your child in it, feel enormous joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. we had this joke where I saw this cartoon. I don't know if it was in the New Yorker or somewhere. Where it was three glasses on the three glasses on a counter, all of them half full. I would say they're half full. And one says, I think I'm half full. One says, I think I'm half empty. And the third says, I think it's piss. <laughs> and, and I'm the half full glass and um, Eric is the piss glass, you know? And I think we have a healthy partnership because we see the world wildly differently. I mean, we, we both think humans are responsible for the state of the world as we find it. And we both think it would be possible for humans to remake the world to be more just and life-giving for more people. I think humans might choose to do that. Eric thinks humans won't. Mm. So he rejects the he rejects being called a pessimist. He calls himself a disappointed idealist. Mm. <laughs> he sees how things could be, and he's just radically um, grieving that they aren't, that we choose greed, that we choose racism, that we choose harming one another, that we choose harming the animals and the planet that where we find ourselves. So, um, you know, I think he makes me a better person and a better thinker. Um, and, uh, we just view, we view the world very differently. So we come up to that. We, we have things the same until the very end where I think humans might make changes and, and he thinks we won't do that as a species individuals will, but as a species, we won't. And Sarah, as well as it being a sort of a common ground, a way of compromising this idea of of being, of having a foster child, the idea also appealed to you ideologically. Could you talk a little bit about why that was? Well, for Eric, his, his thinking was why, why would we make a new child when there are already all of these children who need homes? So in the United States foster system on any given day, there's nearly half a million children in foster care. So 500,000. So he thought we could be a home for the, one of those children. And for me, the ideology that it carried was I'd been, I wrote my dissertation on the torture photographs taken at Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. And I wrote Draw Your Weapons. Basically, it's a book about how are we called to respond to the suffering of others? What's our obligation when we see an image of someone in pain? What What's required of us? What does an ethical response to suffering look like? So, um, foster care became that kind of philosophical response. There's children who are suffering, there's families who are suffering, and we could help. So why wouldn't we choose to do that? So let's look a little bit at the fostering process. You started in Oregon, where you're living in 2015, and start with visits from social workers, um, taking classes. And then in late 2016, you moved to Idaho, and you have to start the process all over again. One thing you make clear in the book is that from the very start of both of those processes, you made it very clear to the social workers that you were looking to foster with a view to adopting. So you didn't just want to foster a child who you would give back. Your ideal, your wish was to adopt a child. When you're in Idaho, the first class that you go to, they emphasise to you that reunification is the goal. 
that's a shock because the social worker who have you spoken to a little earlier has said to you that it won't be hard to adopt a baby. You say that a lot of your friends then asked you, why did you go back? Why did you return to the class the next day? Uh, my, my agent put it another way. She said, you two are very smart. If you wanted to adopt, why the blank did you foster? Um, so I, I think I had a healthy, not a, an unhealthy dose of denial. Um, I thought I had been clear with the social workers that we wanted to adopt, and they had promised me that that was a possibility. Um, and then when the social workers in the training were saying something very different, which is that their goal is to reunify families. Um, and I didn't know this at the time, but Idaho is what's called a reunification state. 73% or 72% of the time, children are returned to their biological families. The national average in the United States is more around 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just kept thinking, you know, well, that won't be the case for us. Or I thought, well, I can say no to a situation where it looks like reunification is possible. And I could say yes to a situation where it looked like they might need a permanent home. I also knew that children get moved from home to home to home to home to home um, six or seven times. And so I thought that being a foster family that wanted to be a permanent home for a child would be a good thing to be. Um, But in fact, wanting to be a permanent placement for a foster child rendered us suspect uh, in the, in the foster care system. Um, Why is that? Our, our, we're seen as kind of as staff, as workers for the state. Mm -hmm. And our goal is to be, our job is to be a temporary home for someone else's child, as long as they need it. And our job is also to support the biological families to, to heal and to get their lives together so that they can welcome their child home. Um, that, that role was one that demanded, um, a radical reckoning in me. Uh, you know, I, we eventually, this is skipping ahead, but we eventually got a a call for a three day old baby girl, um, who I call Coco in the book. And we got a call at 11 in the morning and by two o'clock in the afternoon, we had her in our arms and, um, we were madly in love from the I beginning. I want to ask you about her, Sarah. Yeah. I was about how when you actually get the call and you hear about baby Coco. So she's three days old. You and Eric immediately hop in your car. You head to Twin Falls, which is two hours from the little town mm-hmm. where you live. You go straight to the hospital. The two of you walk in. You go off to go to the restroom and you come back <laughs> and Eric's surrounded by a group of people, including somebody holding this little baby. I want you to describe to me what she was like and what your feelings were at that time. Well, I came back and Eric was surrounded by social workers, but the baby wasn't there yet. We had to be led through a bunch of corridors into locked rooms because she was in the intensive care unit, the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. And um, we walked in. It it makes me uh, weepy to think about it. Uh, We walked in and she weighed less than five pounds and a nurse was holding her. She was tiny, 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 tiny. And um, I just felt immediate connection. I knew she wasn't mine, but I also knew that we belonged to each other. Um, the nurse handed her to me and I, I held her. And um, it was people always talk to me about this idea that when you have a child, your heart expands, that you're capable of a kind of love you didn't know you were capable of. And when I wasn't a parent, that really annoyed me. I felt like you don't know the ways that my heart has expanded in the world already. I, I felt like that was a very alienating thing to say, yes. um, but that's exactly what I felt for Coco. My heart expanded for her. 
Um, but I think that that feeling shows us what we're all capable of. I think it has less to do with, well, in our case, it had nothing to do with biology or genetics or DNA um, and everything to do with the universe handing us this tiny, fragile, precarious being and saying, um, here, tend this. And that's what made my heart expand. And I think that that idea can expand. We can learn to expand for river, for earth, for neighbor, for refugee, for enemy, that it shows us what we're capable of. And, and we've misunderstood and narrowed our capacity when we think it's just about a child, just about welcoming a child. And Sarah, she was particularly vulnerable, wasn't she? All little babies are vulnerable, but she'd been born a month early. As you say, she was only five pounds. She was in intensive care. And when you and Eric took her home to start with for the first few weeks, if not longer, you were having to feed her every two, bottle feed her every two hours. And you took mm -hmm. turns, both of you, in staying awake mm -hmm. all night just to watch her and to feed her. So it was very intense from the word go. What's she like as she starts to grow? What's she like as a baby? Tell us what she's like. What, what's Coco like as a little girl? Uh, she's um, the most amazing little baby. She was mellow, really mellow, giggly, loving, engaged, um, calm. People would say, this isn't a regular baby. You know, she's not a regular baby. You know, everyone fell madly in love with Coco as soon as they met her. Uh, she was just engaging and delightful and um, beautiful and calm and happy and giggly. And uh, when we would go to get her in her crib, when, when it was time for her to be sleeping in her crib, she would always just be wiggling and happy and smiling. She woke up laughing. She was just a happy, giggly, engaged, beautiful, vibrant little being. And Sarah, tell me a little bit about Eric's feelings for her, because you describe earlier in the book how he's, not, apart from the, his philosophical reluctance to have a child. You, you say elsewhere in the book, he's not really a baby person. He's never really gone for babies. How does he react to Coco? Well, I, I, you know, I love babies. And if there's a baby around, I always want to hold the baby and squeeze the baby and, you know, hug on the baby. And um, I would always try to hand Eric babies at parties or social gathering. And he would just kind of keep his arms at his side. Like, I'm not going to pick up that being. Um, but the nurse, I held Coco for a little while and then it was time for us to watch like infant CPR programs and learn how to feed her and do different things like that. And, and uh, I handed the baby to Eric and he held her like he'd always known exactly what to do. Um, and I remember that first night that we came home, we mm -hmm. were lying in bed with our lives had had been radically transformed. You know, we we were two in the morning. We were three, three hours later. Um, and he's, he asked, what did you feel when you first saw her? And I said, oh, I felt love. And he said, I, but what did you feel? What did it feel like? And I said, it felt like love. <laughs> you know, it felt like love. And he said um, to him, it was, I will, I will do anything to protect this child. It was almost a, like a violent feeling. Like if you come at me, I will destroy you. Um, I, I will do, I will put my life on the line for this, this being, this vulnerable being. He, he said he felt like all of the precarity in the universe kind of collapsed onto her body and it was in his hands. Um, so it really, the love he felt for her. And that only intensifies as she gets older, doesn't she? So at one point you talk about how you have to go away for a weekend for work and you leave her with Eric and sadly she gets croup, is it? I think she's quite yeah, she unwell. Has, of course, the one time I left, she got croup. <laughs> yeah. And that's very stressful for him and very frightening. And what does he say to you when you come home? He says, you know, she she became my daughter. Uh, she wasn't just a baby. She became my daughter by just having to tend her 
and seeing her in pain, seeing her scared when she was coughing, you know, seeing the, her own um, body frightening her, mm. um, knowing that he was her whole universe at that point. Um, they, they just bonded in this really deep, uh, profound way. Sarah, you're writing about the experience of being a mother of all the things you do to do with Coco, playing with her, feeding her, taking her outside, showing her the lilac trees, is very, very beautiful writing and it's very, very clear the intensity of your love for her. Did that take you by surprise? Um, I don't think it took me by surprise. I, I've, I'm an intense person. I don't really do anything um, halfway. I always am all in. Uh, and so I, I don't think it surprised me. What surprised me is that I was, I was worried that part of my hesitance of admitting that I wanted to be a mother was that I was worried that becoming a mother would somehow, um, destroy my writing or, um, take time away from my creative practice in a way that would make me feel resentful. And what surprised me was that I didn't resent any time with her. I just wanted that time to go on and on and on. And in fact, I think being her mother, being her foster parent made me a better writer, um, made me pay attention to the natural world in different ways, made me pay attention to human beings in different ways. Um, the kind of fear and grief and, you know, anticipatory grief uh, made me more attuned to other human suffering. Uh, so I feel like it, if anything, it supported my art rather than detract from it. And when you talk about that anticipatory grief, you mean at the prospect that you might have to give her back? Yes, this that the idea that this little being that we fell madly in love with, that we might have to return her to her mother. You know, I, I remember the the first day that we met, um, Evelyn is the name of Coco's birth mother, her biological mother. Um, we met her outside a courtroom. We had a, we had uh, Coco had been staying with us for two weeks already, and we'd never met Evelyn and, and she'd never met us. So th think about that. This woman who gave birth two weeks before, who knows strangers have her child and she's forced to meet us going through metal detectors at a courtroom. It was just so, um, so brutal. Sarah, you meet Evelyn, the biological mother, two weeks after you've had Coco and you then get to know her gradually. Tell us a little bit about Evelyn, what it was like to meet her and what she was like with Coco. Well, the first time I met Evelyn was two weeks after uh, Coco had been in our care. She had been living with us for two weeks. We were strangers. We'd never met her mother, Evelyn. Um, and we met her at a courtroom um, outside a courthouse uh, waiting to go through metal detectors. And I just think about that. You, you've given birth to a child. The child has been taken from you by force. Your body still has the signs of birthing. Um, your breasts are still making milk for a baby that you're not allowed to feed. Um, and you meet the strangers who are taking care of her, waiting to go through metal detectors. So we met her. We, we Coco was in her stroller. We wheeled her through. And, and when I got through, Evelyn said, can I hold her? And I said, of, you know, of course. Um, and she just held Coco's tiny body against her chest and whispered, I love you. 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 You know, for hours um, as we waited to see the judge. Um, and I thought, okay, this is, you know, not what I thought it was. I wanted to keep Evelyn's baby in a way I've never wanted to keep anything before. 
And here was this other woman who was her mother who also wanted her back. Um, and so what, what would be required of me, what would be required of our family as we took care of this stranger that we loved um, and as we learned to love her mother, um, which was much more of a challenge. You know, in the foster care system, we're called stranger care. That's the name that we're given. We're called stranger care and it means um, non-relative care provider or stranger care which is a really alienating term for such an intimate task. I, I had thought the stranger we were supposed to love and care for was Coco. And I had been worried um, whether I would be able <clears throat> to love someone else's child, but that was the easy part. You know, the, really the stranger we were called to love was Evelyn, and that was much more challenging. And you got to know Evelyn sort of through two ways. First of all, you have to take baby Coco on initially weekly and then twice weekly and then these increase you have to take her to Evelyn and leave her with Evelyn so you meet Evelyn on those occasions and you also meet her in the courtroom regularly you all have to go back before the court and the judge has to rule whether baby stays with you or not as time passes you do as you say develop a relationship with Evelyn and, and you call on your reserves and you do grow to love her and I see that you've said somewhere that your relationship with Evelyn is one of the most difficult relationships of your life, but you said also the most profound. Could you explain that? Well, I think, you know, everything, everything in our lives um, was designed to keep Evelyn and me apart. We weren't supposed to like each other, much less love each other, you know, social class, addiction, mental health, education, housing, employment. Um, every Our lives could not have been more radically different than they were. And here we were, and we loved the same girl. Um, so I have a really amazing therapist named Juliana, and she's kind of brutal and gives me lots of talking to. And I think uh, one time I was talking with her and I was feeling, I was feeling like if I had to give Coco back to Evelyn, I might die. Mm. Um, not suicidal, but that I might not survive that kind of loss. And I wanted Evelyn um, to disappear. I wanted her to not get her life together. I wanted to keep her child. And um, Juliana said to me, um, that's not who we are. We don't, we don't root against someone else. We don't hope something bad happens to someone else so that we can get what we want. Um, what we're after is right human relations. And so to love Coco is to love Evelyn. And you need to turn your thinking around 180 degrees and recognize that to, to you know, want Coco to be healthy is to want Evelyn to be healthy. Um, she said, you know, that my How life. that make you feel, Sarah, when she said I that? said at first, am I paying you for this? <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, um, that's not what I wanted to hear. I wanted her to say, oh, yes, I know you want that baby and let's get you that baby. You know, um, she, I had to face the fact that I, here I was, this person who does all my writing on ethics and the suffering of others. And I was wanting another person to suffer. And I was believing that my life was worth more than her life. But our lives were worth the same. Um, and my therapist also said to me, this child might save her life and you don't need your life saved. Um, so that began the practice of learning to love Evelyn, which was a practice. It was, it was a challenge. I did a lot of um, meditation. I did a lot of um, the practice of loving kindness, the Buddhist practice of loving kindness. 
Um, I just had to practice learning to love her. And, and we eventually did learn to love each other. Um, and in the same way that I felt my heart expand for Coco, my heart expanded for Evelyn. And there are some lovely scenes you talk about quite late in the book where uh, Evelyn has Coco for visits at her home and you go to the home as well and you take her gifts and the two of you share cups of tea, you sit on the floor together, you play together. They were some of the whole book's profoundly moving, but they were particularly moving parts, I thought. I wanted to ask you about this, what seemed to me something that you've just raised and something that you talk about quite a lot in the book, and that is the clash between your ideals and your principles and your love for Coco. Mm -hmm. And that's something that comes through very clearly, I think, that your love for Coco causes you to challenge deeply held beliefs about yourself. So when you're waiting to get a baby before you get the baby, you're just waiting, waiting, waiting to get the call. And the therapist, Juliana, who you've mentioned, says, but we don't want to hope for something bad to happen to someone else so we can get what we want. And of course, that is exactly what you're you're hoping for, that a baby is born to an addict, for example, and has to be taken away. And then, as you've said, once you have Coco, you very frankly tell us that you are rooting for Evelyn to relapse. And Juliana says to you, as you say, no, you can't do that. You have to root for her to, to survive and to be well. You know, if you root for her to relapse, you're doing harm to someone else, and that's not who we are. And you say to yourself, what if that is who I am? And I wanted you just to talk about how incredibly confronting that must have been to have these really deeply held feelings about yourself, strongly held beliefs, you're in your early 40s, really tested by your love for this baby. There's two moments that um, I remember the most testing. Um, one was when we were giving her a bath and she, she loves baths. She loved to play with bath toys. She loved to be in the bath. She loved to make her feet squeak on the edge of the bath. She just loves baths. And um, I just had this feeling like, well, if we do get to keep her, will the keeping ever feel clean? You know, um, I think that I had thought foster care was more ethical than other forms of, of private adoption, for example. But why did you think that, Sarah? I was wondering. I thought, well, here are kids who need here are kids who need homes. It's an emergency, and we can provide that. Um, whereas I felt like private adoption was more of an exchange of money. Like we we weren't quote unquote buying a baby. We were um, giving a baby a home who needed it. Um, you know, since then I've I've been part of adoption systems um, and worked very closely with nonprofit ado- adoption agency here in Idaho where I live and. It, it is profoundly ethical and beautiful and had, you know, I didn't know what I was talking about, but I had told myself this story that this is, this is a more ethically clean than other ways. And the more I was involved in the foster care system, the more complicated that became and and the more complicit I became here, here we are. The only reason children end up in the foster care system are because in the United States, we don't have family friendly policies. We don't have affordable housing. We don't have living wage. We don't have access to healthcare. We don't have addiction services. We have racism. We have poverty. We have all kinds of systemic failures. That's if we fix those, people ask me over and over again, what would you do to fix the foster care system? And I joke and say, end poverty. You end poverty. You give people good mental health counseling. You give pe- people access to um, support so that they can, you know, heal from their addiction. You're not going to have very many children in foster care. So 
we're way down river by the time people, these children come into care. And so I just felt um, complicit in my wanting to keep this child and in looking at Evelyn and her history and how much suffering she had experienced. Um, I felt responsible for that. The second moment where I felt where I felt that uh, was before we said yes to Coco, we got many other calls for children that we said no to, including a child that lived very close to us um, and had needs that we were not um, able to to meet. Saying no to him was really profoundly shattering. Um, that was that experience where I thought I'm not who I think I am. You know, here I am writing about responding to the suffering of others. And there's a little boy who lives less than two miles from my house. And we get a phone call and, and we say no to that boy. Um, Eric said that we're saying no all the time in the world. We're saying no to other people's suffering all the time. And, and I said, well, I had to actually say no to a person on the telephone who used my name and asked me specifically to take this specific child. Um, but it later turned out that he got a much better home than we could have provided. He ended up living with a physical therapist and an occupational therapist. So he got the support he needs. So that's another lesson. Like you're not the only one you're not, you're, it's not all up to you. Sometimes you aren't the best and you need to move out of the way so that someone with better skills and better capacity than you are can, can do the caretaking that's needed. So that was also a very humbling, um, and shattering and heart expanding experience all at once. Sarah, I want to talk to you about this idea at the the kernel, I think, of the book, this idea of the kindness of strangers, of loving what isn't ours. So you've talked a little bit about the the title stranger care, what it means in the foster system, as you say, is foster or adoption by a non-relative. But you talk about it in another way. You say at one point, Sometimes the love of one stranger for another is what keeps us safe. And you give us the example that the situation that you're in when the biological connection doesn't guarantee the child's safety. So there was obviously a biological connection between Evelyn and her baby, but because of her addiction and her history, um, that connection wasn't going to be enough to keep baby Coco safe. Could you talk a little bit about this notion of, of loving what isn't ours? Yes, I, you know, I started out when I started out writing Stranger Care, I, it was before, before Coco, and I wanted to write, it was almost an argumentative book, I wanted to write a book that that was about biology doesn't matter, that really, um, you know, our love is a practice, and, and we can learn from the natural world, we can look at, at the natural world and the ways that the natural world models what Stranger Care looks like, um, in order to have a more expansive sense of kinship and belonging. Like I'm going to stop you there and ask you to give some yeah. examples because your book is peppered with beautiful examples from the na- from the natural world. First, about trees. Tell us a little bit about trees, about how you draw analogies from the way trees care for each other. I, I read the book, uh, The Hidden Lives of Trees by Peter Bullhaven, and I was obsessed. <laughs> um, you know, he, he makes this argument that trees communicate um, underground, that trees talk, that trees remember, that trees mourn, uh, that trees grieve, um, that trees take care of one another, that they take care of their own kind and they take care of other other trees. Um, there's also a, a writer named Susan Simard um, who has a new book out recently that came out around the same time as Stranger Care called um, Finding the Mother Tree. And she did an experiment where she noticed that um, there's these trees, uh, nodes kind of in 
forest networks of what she calls mother trees. And these mother trees take care of hundreds of other trees through their fungal filaments in the root networks. I'm getting probably all the names wrong, but um, she did an experiment. She wanted to see if, if trees could recognize their kin. Um, so she set up an experiment. It turns out, yes, of course, they can recognize their kin. And sometimes they will send their kin, you know, more, more resources, protect them more. Um, but they also tend uh, the seedlings of strangers. Um, so it's not just uh, tending what's like them. They also tend what's different. Um, and I thought that that was really beautiful. And she gives the examples of um, ponderosa pine and dug fir and how as the climate warms, um, the ponderosas will replace the dug fir. And you can do an experiment where when that tree realizes it's being replaced, it takes all its nutrients and all its information and he, they send it um, to the other trees, giving them messages for what they will need to survive in the, in the new world. Um, so I think trees really model that kind of stranger care. You draw examples from the animal kingdom as well. Would you like to talk about one or two of those? Sure. I Well, we had robins in our backyard that we watched. That was my favorite. <laughs> yeah, we became obsessed with robins and um, watching robins tend their young. Um, and the the mother robins uh, will sit on the eggs and then the eggs will hatch and then the, both parents will feed the robins. And then once the babies fledge, then the father robin teaches the babies how to hunt, hunt for worms and how to how to fly um, and watching them, watching these families uh teach each other what they need to know. I thought, why have I never looked at birds as families? Why do I not look at a bird and say, um, that's a father, that's a child, that's a sibling, that's a mother. Um, and the robins return to our yard year after year after year to, to have more babies and to be family. Um, and one example, uh, one of the fledges got stuck in our window well. And Eric went out to tend um, that fledge and had to talk to the parents who were very upset that 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 Eric was touching their baby. Um, but then I thought, you know, every time you see a robin, do you think, oh, maybe their baby just got stuck in a window well and someone had to help them? You know, give me this sense that the whole world is grieving. Um, you never know when you see a deer, uh, whether their their mother or their child has been hit by a car. You know, you never know when you see a um a robin if their fledgling has been in danger that day. So I just started seeing the animal world as as this world that shows us what what tending and what care looks like was that helpful sarah looking at that looking at looking at trees looking at animals thinking about that notion of stranger care of how in nature um non-related trees non-related animals care for each other did it bring you comfort looking at that it was the only helpful thing really you know being in being in nature i live in a beautiful place where i got to hike um every day um, as I navigated this experience and um, watching just the kind of the abandon, you know, the 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 wild blooms and uh, the aspen trees that share root systems and the vultures that tend the dead um, gave me a sense of perspective that my heartbreak wasn't the only heartbreak. You know, I think that um, I felt that too in my activism as well. I I um, work for a nonprofit that protects the human rights of immigrants. And that was another thing that was really important as I was um, walking through this situation is, is to have this very crazy feeling and experience of watching 
families at the border between the United States and Mexico separated and, and trying to help parents find their children that have been taken from them while being in the foster care system, wanting to keep someone else's child. You know, that that was such uh, such having that juxtaposition was um, such an important ethical experience to have um, similar to the natural world where, where, you know, the world is much bigger than, than me. And um, I used to not really like the word humility. Uh, I thought it was used against me in graduate school (laughs) studying religion, that um, it was a way of to tell people who want to see social change to just be quiet and calm down and be patient. Um, But I heard a new way of thinking about humility, which is that it comes from humus or from the soil. This idea that everything we do is connected to everything else and the way that the soil is connected to everything and gives life to everything. Um, and I think my experience working with immigrants and my experience watching the natural world helped me have that kind of humility, recognizing that everything I do has effects, um, some intended and some not. So it's important to to walk carefully. Sarah, I want to ask you about the Jewish philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas, who you write about. He lost his family in the Holocaust and he developed an ethical system that would, he hoped, make another genocide impossible. What was his theory? What was what was that system? Um, Levinas had this idea that um, when you're confronted by an other, someone who scares you, someone you don't understand, someone who makes you feel like maybe their life doesn't even count as a life, um, then you must do everything in your power to protect that life. He called it that otherness, he called it radical alterity. And he said that the radical alterity that shines from the face of the other is God. And that when you're in this, when you're in the presence of someone or something that scares you, then that's actually the sign that you're in the presence of God. And you're called to do everything in your power to protect that life, even at the cost of losing your own life. And I'd been reading Levinas and giving talks about Levinas around the country uh, before Coco came into our lives. And then Coco came into our lives. And then I realized that Evelyn uh, was my other and I needed to do everything in my power to protect her life, even at the cost of losing what I wanted most. I want to talk to you now, Sarah, about the idea of kinship, which is central to the book as well. Right. I guess other ways of describing it are a finding home, belonging. You talk about all of those things. It seems to me you're talking about all of them in a similar sort of way. In an interview, you said this, one of the things that kept returning to me as I worked on this book was the idea that we are all made of the same material. We all come from the stars. And so if that's true, if whale, rock, child, river are all made of the same material, then wherever we find ourselves, we're never far from home. I'd like you to talk about that and about this idea of kinship, which you talk a lot about in the book and, again, where you look at analogies in the animal kingdom and in other communities. So if you could just talk yeah, talk a little bit about that idea of finding home and about what kinship means to you. Yeah, I, I wrote Stranger Care as a love letter to Coco. I wanted to be able to mother her if there ever came a time that I wasn't allowed to mother her. And something that became important to me was writing a book that would help her feel at home no matter where she found herself. I wanted to write a book that might help people think differently about strangers and might help us better tend one another so that wherever Coco landed, she might be well cared for. 
And that was my intention in writing this book. And part of what helped me think expansively or um, in a way that made me not want to die, I mean, to be quite frank, about having to let her go was remembering that we're all made of the same material. Exactly what you just said. If we all come from the stars, then we're all family. We all belong to each other. And I wanted to know, well, what would the world look like if we lived with that expansive sense of kinship? If I felt as connected to the mountain as I did to the river, as I did to Coco, as I did to Eric, as I did to you know the biological family that I came from, how might we live differently if, if we believe that to be true? Um, and, and the reason that I wanted that is I wanted it to be medicine for Coco. I wanted her to live in that kind of world. And so that was what my writing was looking to do, was trying to find those threads of kinship in the, in the places where we don't usually think that we'll find them. Yes. Yeah, so you say to Coco at one point, you are never ours, and yet we belong to each other. When you're talking about this idea of kinship, you, you look through the book at examples of other communities and different ways of creating kinship. So you look at communities in New Guinea, in Alaska, in the Philippines, and you see that there's more to kinship than just biological connection. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, about those discussions of other communities and how they helped to focus your thinking? You know, there were some communities that think if you eat food grown on the same land that you become family. I thought that was a beautiful idea, the idea that, you know, we live in our bodies and then our bodies return to the earth and then our bodies help the soil um, grow crops and then we eat those crops and it's this like cycle and that if you eat, um, if you eat of that, I think they say of that fat of, of the land, then you become family or other communities where if you're born on the same day, you're family, or if you survive shipwreck, then you're family. You know, I think that we have these limited stories about what counts as family. That's part of the reason that um, we have such a narrow view of who, who we're called to care for and whose lives matter and whose lives don't is because of this construction of this like biological nuclear family. And I wanted to um, blow those categories apart and see what I might find in the fragments. Something that seemed to me to be related to this idea of kinship and of finding home is another idea that you talk about. The idea of vulnerability um, is something that you write about quite a lot in this book as well. And you you talk about a writer, Judith Butler, who argues that the vulnerability of infants mirrors the vulnerability of all human beings. So in other words, although we think we're self-sufficient, in fact, we're all very much reliant on each other. Does that relate to this idea of kinship, of all of us being kin and family that we've just talked about? Yes. Um, you're such a careful reader. Thank you for these amazing questions, Nicole. I really appreciate um, your thinking and the care and your generosity. I um yeah, uh Judith Butler says that we have this idea that we're self-sufficient, that our that our you know skin protects us from one another. Um, but that actually the radical vulnerability of infants, which I saw with Coco, you know, she couldn't survive without us, is how we're all walking through the day. Um, we are all radically dependent on one another that we pretend otherwise. We all cause harm to one another that we pretend otherwise. And we can all save each other that we pretend otherwise. Um, and I, so I think that's something I've thought about a lot. She calls it shared precarity, um, that we're in this, this um, radical dependence on each other that we we like to ignore. Um, so that was something I was thinking about a lot when writing and, and that word vulnerability, I thought about a lot and I looked up the etymology of it and it has these two parts that mm. 
we only think of one of them. So vulnerability, we think of it as the capacity of being wounded, the potential to be wounded, um, you know, the vulnerability to be wounded, but it also means to wound. It used to mean the capacity to wound and the capacity to be wounded. And that was the way I'd like to think about vulnerability in this book. It's both. Um, and similar with Levinas, who we talked about earlier, Levinas said, when you encounter the other, you have two, there's two moments. The first is you recognize the other could kill you. And the second, you recognize you could kill the other. And so his ethical system is in response to both of those. How can both of those urges be avoided and move from harm to care? And um, I think there's something about the foster care system and something about adoption as well. And then something about watching the natural world that suggests um, caring for the stranger is, is everything. Um, and it's what we're doing all the time. We're either caring or refusing to care. And um, I that's something I wrestle with in, in my life on a daily basis. Sarah, you admit several times in this book that you were wrong about certain things. You're incredibly frank about this. You're incredibly brave. So you, one example is you you make the point that you really, before you had Coco, you underestimated how much you would love this child and how terrible you would feel about handing her back. And you re- referred, I'm not sure if it's in this book or something else of yours that I read, but you you said this. My mentor, the theologian Gordon Kaufman, taught me that the most ethical thing we can say is, I might be wrong. To admit that is an act of love for me. Would you like to talk a bit about that and about how how you yourself have been able to say in this book, I was wrong? I didn't realize how hard it would be. Yeah. Gordon, Gordon, I've been talking about Gordon so much about this book, and I'm so I'm so grateful to get to bring his name to these conversations. He's my mentor, and he he died, and I I miss him, and he he's shaped my thinking so profoundly. This is when um, you were studying theology, isn't it? That's yeah, when you. He's, you... A, he's a Mennonite theologian, um, and when I was at Harvard Divinity School, he was one of my mentors, and he said that the most ethical thing we can say is, "I might be wrong." And that has stayed with me so much. And it's actually formally what I try to do on the page in my writing. Um, It's partly why I write in fragments, why I leave so much white space, um, and why I want to admit those moments that I'm wrong. Um, Because I think it's the most ethical thing that we can do is to say that my understanding of someone else is wrong. My understanding of the foster care system is wrong. You know, for me, that's a theological practice. Um, That's what I learned in divinity school, which is that I don't, I don't consider myself a Christian anymore, but I do consider myself a theologian. And what I like about the, theology is this idea that of God being this being that's bigger than anything humans can say about God. So our words always fall short. And for me, that's true of every human being, of every river, of every mountain, of every cat, of every baby, of every person. Um, our words will always fall short and fail to capture that otherness that Levinas talks about, what shines from the person or what Theodore Adorno calls the non-identity um, or the haunting, uh, this this feeling that something's been left out. And so I wanted I want to do that on the page formally with a lot of white space, and I want to do it content-wise to say I've made mistakes, I get it wrong. Um, there's more to Evelyn than than I'll ever know. Uh, there's more to Coco than I'll ever know. There's more than to Eric than I'll ever know. And um, how can how can I show that to the reader? this idea that I might be wrong? How can I leave room for the transcendence of of every possible being? Sarah, my final question is, what was the most important thing that you learned from loving Coco? 
I'll give you a hint. You say at one point, it's never wrong to choose love. It was going to make me cry to say that. When I first got Coco, I, I talked to a friend of mine who um, had given birth to an impossibly small uh, little girl, very, very, very premature. And, and they didn't know if, if that girl would live or die. And um, she said, she told me about the time where she stayed away from the NICU because she just couldn't, um, she couldn't uh, be near her daughter. She couldn't uh, let herself love this being that she was afraid that was going to die. And she realized um, her job as the mother was to love the child as long as she was alive, whether that was a few days or years or decades. And she said to me, um, it's never wrong to choose love. And then she texted me that she was starting to make Coco a quilt and those are the words I carried. Um, I had, her name is Katie Ford. She's a poet. And then I had another writer, Emily Rapp Black, whose son had died when he turned three from a terrible disease. And she she was my guide as well, that no love is ever wasted. Um, that that's our job to love our children as long as they're with us um, and to love them even after that. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's what I learned is that it's never no love is wasted. It's never wrong to choose love. And that love just shines through in every page. I don't think I've ever read a more powerful book about motherhood. Sarah, I can't thank you enough for talking to me. Your book is absolutely beautiful. I hope that there'll come a time where you'll be able to return to Sydney and, and to talk about it here. And in the meantime, I wish you all the very best of luck with, with it and with your life. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you for your beautiful questions. And um, I think I joked when we first started, I wrote another book so I could come back to Australia. So (laughs) fingers crossed I'll someday get to meet you in person. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabity.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Abadie, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon. Thank you.